Hey, this is Duran. Welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, DR, Kaya, and Sam at talking about our thankfulness affirmations for 2020. We're taking a break from the news this week, and we have two interviews. I sit down with Vanita Gupta to discuss the Trump administration and the Justice Department. You know, Vanita used to lead the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ. And then Kaya actually sits down and talks to Wendy Kopp, the CEO and co-founder of Teach for All, talking about the long list of issues facing teachers and students around the country. So my advice this week is about listening to yourself. I have a therapist and I'm all about therapy. If you have a pathway to therapy, I would encourage you to take it. Now, here's what I realized about therapy that I wish somebody had told me is that I was facing a particular problem and I was talking about it every week and I realized that I was saying the same thing every week, like a different variation of the same thing. And it was in hearing myself repeated that I'm like, this, I get it. That 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 is wild that I'm actually like saying the same thing over and over and like, the therapist is asking probing questions and sort of pushing. And I'm like, hearing myself say it over and over was actually one of the things that helped me realize, like, this is wild, like doing this over and over. And if I hadn't been to therapy to even hear that, because the cool thing about the therapist is like, the therapist isn't my friend. He is not my family member. We don't work together. And I didn't appreciate until I went to therapy that everybody else I talk to about issues is like somebody who in some way we have a deep relation, we have some sort of relationship with. And the therapist is great because our relationship is is rooted in this one style of conversation. And that actually is like a beautiful and freeing thing uh, to work through problems. So uh, in therapy, I have learned to listen to myself better. Uh, and the, the act of listening to yourself is actually also a revolutionary thing. So listen to yourself. I'm thankful for the community of people all across the country that is willing to push and fight and challenge and cry and laugh about changing this world. That like I've just been in a community with so many people in 2020 who have just been about like serious things. You know, before the pandemic, people said that when resources got scarce, we would cannibalize each other. That like that's what happens. That the scarcity mindset is actually like the core mindset in people and that when things become scarce, we just fight each other. And I think we saw the exact opposite, right, during COVID, especially the first go-round. It was like people built community in incredible ways. I was doing more on Zoom and and FaceTime and house party and all this stuff that like we, we never done. It was incredible. And it still is incredible to see the way that people have like stayed in relationship, even if they can't be in crowds in person, even if they can't be in the office. Like we have just, we are a people who always build new ways of community. And like, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for our ingenuity and like the spirit of community that just like shine through. And I think that we will forever be better for how much we have remained joyful in the midst of a big challenge. So Let's go and let's end 2020, y'all. Cannot wait for 2021. I'm thankful for so much this holiday season, of course, for health and safety and food and a job and so many things that so many other people don't have during this pandemic moment. I'm especially thankful for um, the time that this pandemic has given us all to step back and reflect on what's really, really important. I find myself spending time differently with family and friends. I find myself reading more. I find myself really reprioritizing the most important things. And I wouldn't have done that um, if it wasn't for the current situation that we find ourselves in. And so even though this is an extremely dark moment, 
um, for us as a country, for us as a world, for us as a people. I am supremely thankful and filled with gratitude for the chance to think about how I want to live my life and to make the appropriate adjustments. And I'm super thankful for my Pod Save the People family, my colleagues and listeners who help me learn and keep me sane. Peace and happy holidays. You know, this year has been tough. COVID, the election, police violence, so many different crises happening simultaneously. But this Thanksgiving, I am thankful that this election went the right way. I'm thankful that we turned out, that our communities turned out in record numbers, and we defeated Donald Trump. And while there remain a lot of crises, and COVID remains as bad, if not worse than ever, at least now, it seems like, it feels like we have a fighting chance to rebuild, to reimagine a better future. So I'm thankful for us. I'm thankful that we did it, that we voted, that we turned out, that we exerted our power, and we fired Donald Trump. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. You know, we're starting to go into the holiday season, and, and it's been a tough year, y'all, <laughs> to, say, to say the least. But, you know, I think what we have to be reminded of and what we really have to move in the spirit of is giving and kindness and being empathetic. Um, and I think that is what has actually saved us up until this point, you know, still trying to get through coronavirus, having to deal with, uh, you know, a violent administration, dealing with the very uh, violent nature of white supremacy. But I think really we have to really focus and really practice just being there for one another. And one of my favorite quotes by Maya Angelou actually goes, give it all you've got. Love it with the passion because life truly does give back many times over what you put into it. I have found that among its other benefits, giving liberates the soul of the giver. When you learn, teach, when you get, give. And so to me, there's this kind of ideology around if you are giving, it's charity. That's not what it is, y'all. We give because, as Maya puts it, it liberates us, right? So you're not doing it to make yourself feel good. <laughs> You're doing it to actually liberate yourself and to be more connected to a community, more connected to a person, more connected to a family member. You don't give because you have to. You give because it is so part of who you are and making yourself better ultimately. So I think those are just my words for this season and for gratitude. Just give, 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 give. Don't go anywhere. More Pontic the People's coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Backcountry. The outdoors is calling, and if you want to answer, backcountry.com is the place to go. Because when you shop at backcountry.com, you can pick up the phone and talk gear with an actual former Olympian. Now, here's the thing. It was founded by a former Olympic skier, and backcountry.com is the best place for outdoor gear and apparel. From Patagonia, which you know I love, to Yeti, to Big Agnes, to Santa Cruz bicycles, backcountry.com has thousands of your favorite brands and products for nearly every outdoor adventure. Anything from providing you a detailed pack list for your next summit to gift recommendations for your outdoorsy friend or to get a winter jacket or a vest that works best for you. Go to backcountry.com slash PSTP and enter promo code PSTP to get 15% off your first full price purchase. Some exclusions apply. 
Go right now and get 15% off at backcountry.com slash PSTP and enter promo code PSTP. Backcountry.com slash PSTP. And don't forget to enter the code PSTP. Vanita Gupta is a CEO and president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. We've had her on before way back when the pod started. She's here to talk about some of the things we need to pay attention to as a transition happens and what we need to look forward to in the Biden administration. Vanita used to run the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ. We are all Team Vanita. Let's go. Vanita, thanks so much for joining us on Pod Save the People. Great to be here again, Deray. So a lot has changed since the last time we talked. You were uh, one of the original guests when, when I launched Pod Save the People. And now you are firmly into your role at the Leadership Conference. I think you had just started uh, when I, yeah. when we started the pod. Well, can you just give us an overview about what the Leadership Conference is? And then we'll sort of jump in. Yeah. So the Leadership Conference uh, on Civil and Human Rights is an organization that was founded 70 years ago by Jewish and African-American labor leaders who... Uh, had the prescience to know that the fight for civil rights couldn't be won by one group alone, but needed to be waged in coalition. And they founded this small committee to basically fight for federal civil rights laws in Washington uh, and to deploy the power across organizations like the NAACP, like the labor unions, uh, to kind of deploy that power in service of racial justice, voting rights in particular. And so throughout our 70 year history, we have been uh, kind of the legislative arm of the civil rights movement. We helped plan the 1963 March on Washington with Dr. King. We helped write the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act in 2009. And with every administration, we are trying to advance and protect civil rights. You can imagine that in the Trump era, since I joined, that has meant being a strategic hub of the resistance, basically against the attacks on everything that we hold dear on our values uh, and trying to fight forward for justice, equality, uh, and fairness. And we are today a coalition of over 220 national civil and human rights organizations. Uh, We are a force multiplier, really trying to make sure that across organizations, across communities, we're fighting some of the biggest fights of our day in in strategic ways. We're also a staff of over 100 with a big portion of that focused on voting rights, democracy reform. Uh, And in the Trump era, our kind of keen focus has been the fight to protect our democracy. For us, that's looked like protecting voting rights, trying to protect the census, given that political power is allocated based on the census. It's been about the courts uh, because so much of civil rights and human rights is um, adjudicated in the courts, and there's been too little attention by progressives on the importance of the courts. So these are some of the kind of key fights of our day, and it's been a pretty extraordinary ride the last four years, as you can imagine. What, so when I think about that fight to protect democracy, one of the things that you all have led on, at least for me, and I don't know another org doing this, but I'm sure there are other people paying attention, is the judges' battle. Can you lay out for us what's happening with the confirmations uh, by the Trump administration? And are we stuck? Like, can we get, you know, I think about the people who were rated whatever the bat, the worst rating is from the group that rates judges. You clearly know that better than I do. Uh, can we get those people off the court later? Are we stuck with them? Or is it just like a bad strategy to try and get them off because it might come back to hurt us later? Like, what what's going on with the judges? So on the judges, Trump has filled 
he inherited the largest number of vacancies than any president in modern history because there was such obstruction in the Obama administration to filling these vacancies. He has, in his four years, filled a quarter of our nation's judge vacancies, meaning that a quarter of the judges that have lifetime appointments are Trump appointees. And some of these appointees are the most extreme that people have seen in recent years, anti-LGBTQ, anti-civil rights, anti-abortion rights and women's rights. So Trump judges now constitute 30% of our appellate courts and 24% of our district courts. And that's really staggering. So in, in the diversity, the demographics are really quite incredible. Overall, more than 85% of these judges are white more than about 75% are men. So overall, you've got like more than 66% are white men, uh, less than 24% are women. You've got less than 15% are judges of color. Um, the diversity stats on this are really uh, atrocious, but there's also a lack of professional diversity and ideologically, they constitute some of the most extreme nominees that have been confirmed to the bench. This is part of a longer term project for the Trump McConnell uh, administration. The conservatives have long understood the power of the courts in our country and in society and have been really single mindedly focused on on them. And so even while the Trump administration didn't have a ton of legislative achievements, they were very focused on getting judges confirmed and because every issue we care about is affected by the courts. You know, people say, well, can we impeach them? Can we take them out? Um, the answer really is no. The, the bar for impeaching a judge is incredibly high. That is not a strategy that uh, is going to uh, be terribly successful. I think the uh, goal is to be ready for when vacancies arise, that there are really good, strong people that are both professionally and demographically diverse that are represent kind of uh, the majority of this country and uh, and are reflected in the bench accordingly. And that there's a lot of robust conversation, again, especially since uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett became a United States Supreme Court justice just a few weeks ago, a lot more conversation about whether there needs to be an expansion of the courts and what that needs to look like, you know, whether there should be term limits and the like. That conversation, I think, is going to be ongoing, given how incredibly conservative the courts have become. But we also cannot be, we've got to do a better job as progressives of centering the importance of the courts and why people like the American public needs to care about who become judges and what that process is in a way that conservatives have been so single-mindedly focused on them. Um, But can we get these people off the court or not? Are we stuck? Yeah, we're stuck. We're stuck with these people on the court, barring a really high bar of ethical conduct that gets violated. There's not, there isn't a strategy that you change the administration and then you get to take all these people off the court. That's why when we say these are lifetime appointments, we mean they're lifetime appointments. It's why it's really incumbent on people to care about this whole process because judges and courts are going to determine and touch every part of our lives, every piece of legislation that's going to get passed. So much of it gets challenged in the courts and the success of any progressive or civil rights agenda is going to be touched by the courts. But it is not a strategy 
to say, okay, well, we'll just live with these Trump judges because we can get rid of most of them in the next administration. That's not how our judiciary works. These are lifetime appointments. I don't know why I thought that like there was an impeachment process or something, especially with the ones who were rated the lowest. I mean, this is why I'm asking no. you because I really... No, um, because the whole process, the way that the federal process works is that the Senate is supposed to be a firewall. They provide advice and consent. The White House does vetting. They nominate judges supposedly after vetting. And then the Senate is supposed to be a more impartial arbiter that through the hearings, you know, gets at whether a person is fit or unfit to be a judge. The American Bar Association rates judges. There has been more people confirmed to be judges in the Trump era that were rated not qualified by the American Bar Association than ever before. But those people, once confirmed, serve lifetime appointments. And the the bar for impeaching a judge is really, really high and pertains to kind of personal ethical conduct. Um, So as a strategy for remaking the courts and having, you know, more civil rights progressive judges on, you know, removing judges is not a strategy. So bar and sessions, are they, were they equally bad as AGs or is, is bar much worse than sessions? You know, I think Barr is the worst attorney general we've seen in the modern era. I mean, there was not even a pretense of having any independence from the White House. He has functioned throughout his entire tenure really as Trump's defense lawyer rather than as the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. Jeff Sessions, uh, you know, I've been on the record saying this, uh, is one of the most anti-civil rights attorneys general that we've had in recent memory. But I will say the one thing he did right was recusing himself from the Mueller investigation. And as mad as it made Trump, like the fact that he didn't get his permission to do that, you know, honored a fundamental precept of the Justice Department that uh, there is supposed to be independence from the White House and that nobody is above the law. I mean, Barr really eviscerated that uh, at every turn and in so many instances defied the judgment of career professionals at the Justice Department uh, and really made no bones about it. So I uh, I think Attorney General Barr's tenure has been deeply troubling and destructive to basic democratic norms. It's been really demoralizing for the staff at the Justice Department, and that's going to need to be rebuilt in a Biden administration. Um, in the first 100 days of the new administration, what should we be looking forward to from Biden and Harris? So I think that there's going to be taking a lot of executive actions in the first 100 days. I think some of the executive actions that they're going to take almost immediately will be reversing the Muslim ban, uh, protecting dreamers, reversing the trans ban. It's going to be re, you know reinstating the United States in the Paris Agreement So they're in, and in the World Health Organization. These are some of the very immediate actions that are going to be taken. And then they're going to be looking to put in place bolder you know, agendas for the agencies. And, uh, and because it really will not be enough to restore everything to the Obama era. This is, we're in a different time. Uh, the country's in a different mood. We have seen incredible, you know, mobilization over the summer for racial justice, kind of a reckoning in the country around systemic injustice and how we meet that moment and articulate an agenda is going to really matter. We've been through an election cycle, which while seeing record high voter turnout, over 160 million people voted, there was such a concerted effort to suppress the vote 
to flood voters with disinformation, to disable them from being motivated to vote or from having the right information amid a pandemic. These are the kinds of things that need longer term fixes. And uh, we will be pushing at the leadership conference to make sure that uh, a Biden administration is creating an affirmative agenda that can really meet this moment and deal with voting rights, deal with COVID and and inequality and jobs in COVID. There's going to be a big COVID relief package, undoubtedly, and how wide sweeping that is, is going to matter in February and March. Um, There are so many people suffering. COVID is on the rise. Mitch McConnell has been sitting on the HEROES Act since May. Uh, and the American people need relief. And I know that that is a first order of business for a Biden administration. How do we make sure that that this administration doesn't sabotage the next one? Is there anything that we can do, especially in the Justice Department, or do we just pray? Well, I mean, the good news is so much damage has been done over the last four years. Um, And the good news is that there's, you know, civil servants have a lot of protections in place uh, for to prevent against kind of partisan firings and the like. But look, his behavior for the last four years, his behavior since voters decided this election with his refusal to concede, his efforts to delay and slow down the transition, they are not succeeding. He has his litigation around the country to try to undo the will of the American voters is not succeeding. Uh, He will be removed from the White House on January 20th. And there should be no doubt in anyone's mind about that. You know, on this front, the transition is moving forward. They're naming people. They're they're doing the work. There's a lot of folks with prior government experience that are serving the Biden transition such that these impediments are not going to get in the way of the kind of planning that they're doing. It's one of the reasons why I think uh, President-elect Biden almost immediately named a COVID task force so that they could get to work and be able to have an actual plan in place for the pandemic on January 20th. So I fully suspect that while Trump may never concede and may try to make things as difficult as possible for a transition, he is not going to succeed in impeding the ability of this new administration to be prepared and hit the ground running come January 20th. I just, I don't think it's possible. As we go into a new administration, what are some things that we should be paying attention to? Like, what are some things that we should be thinking about? Is it judges? Is it a local legislation? Should we be looking for these big sweeping things as, as our initial things? I don't know. What should we be paying attention to? Um, I think we need to be paying attention to all of it. I So this is a moment where, we have to keep our eye on all of these pieces. The, we have to be making sure that any COVID relief package contains special relief for essential workers, frontline workers who are mostly black and brown folks, um, and that we are reaching for more structural solutions than just Band-Aid ones in this moment. It's going to be a challenge if it's a Republican Senate. Obviously, a Republican Senate is going changes the dynamics of what may be politically possible, but But we've got to keep our eye on judges. We have to also, though, remember that personnel is policy and that there are a lot of decisions getting made about who is going to be at these agencies, who is coming in as political appointees across the federal government that is going to shape the priorities of any agency in government and for the federal government at large. You know that over the summer, there was a big push to get the Justice and Policing Act uh, passed in Congress. It passed the House. 
there will be a renewed look. Unfortunately, you and I both know that these tragedies of police violence um, and unarmed uh, African-American citizens is not going to end uh, and that there will need to be renewed focus on police accountability, police reform, justice reform. Uh, and so I think there are a set of issues that we need to keep our eye on and we have to be articulating this affirmative vision uh, and keep pressing on it and where things can't happen in Congress, what are the executive actions that we can move forward on? And you know, when I think about what we've learned in this election cycle about the amount of voter suppression that exists, about the amount of disinformation that has been permitted on social media platforms, in the past, and some of these companies took actual concrete action to safeguard and mitigate the crisis in the cycle, we've got to be thinking about what are the longer term solutions to address these problems, things like HR1, the For the People Act, there's going to be talk about, you know, an affirmative uh, regulatory agenda for social media platforms. Uh, and, but like, I think the first thing that we need to be looking at is COVID. This is a massive crisis for the country. And the fact that black and brown communities and white working class communities have been so hard hit by it, it's important that Biden's economic team is looking at experts who have background in systemic racial uh, barriers on economic opportunity. This is an opportunity to really dig in on some of these questions. So there's a lot to look at because of what we've been through the last four years. But, you know, people sometimes think that we get through an election and it's the end of the work if they get the candidate elected that they were hoping for. But the reality is, in some ways, we are just moving into this new phase of the work where it's about making sure that we are pushing on the agenda that we uh, wanted, you know, we elected uh, candidates for and that we're holding them accountable to actually implementing and executing on that agenda. This is a really important phase of the work and none of us should kind of, you know, roll up our sleeves and say we're done. This is a really crucial, crucial phase for, for all of us. Cool. Thanks so much, Vanita. Uh, we consider you a friend of the pod and always have, when you're appointed uh, Attorney General, we will try and schedule you again. <laughs> all right. I will talk to you soon. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Bye. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Now, Wendy Kopp is a CEO and co-founder of Teach for All. And now Kai is actually sitting down with her to talk about some of the issues facing educators, students, and parents in this current moment. So listen up. I am so excited today to have the opportunity to spend some time talking with the incomparable Wendy Kopp. Wendy, many of you know as the founder of Teach for America, which is where I first encountered her back in 1992 when I was a freshly minted Teach for America core member. Uh, and after 20 years of work at Teach for America, which continues to this day, Wendy branched out into the world and started Teach for All the network of almost 60 countries uh, where uh, we're creating leaders who begin their careers through this unique educational experience. And so Wendy is with us today to bring us some insights from what's going on around the world that might be helpful to us as we think about how to continue to tackle the American education crisis that we find ourselves in. Welcome, Wendy. Thanks, Kaya. It's such an honor to be here. Um, we are thrilled to have you. I know that lots of Pod Save the People listeners are fans, and so I'm excited to have this conversation. Great, me too. Um, I want to start with uh, the 2018 Global PISA studies. The OECD recently released the results of the 2018 PISA, 
which included a global competency portion for the first time, but the United States didn't participate. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with PISA, can you tell us a bit more about what PISA is and then why it was significant that the U.S. didn't participate this time? Yes. So PISA is a study of every three years um, of 15-year-olds' performance. And historically, it's looked at simply reading, math, and science scores. Um, And, you know, it's really the most significant tool we have to enable cross-border learning in education. You can see which countries are, you know, improving the most quickly and learn from those countries. You know, what are they doing differently? The U.S. is one of 79 countries and has been participating in that basic PISA. But the innovators at the OECD um, have been thinking about the fact that, you know, education is not only about math, reading, and science, um, and have been working collaboratively with many others to, you know, get their heads around the broader outcomes that we need to be fostering in classrooms around the world. And so this is the first year that they had an additional portion that looked at this question of global competence. So it looked at questions like, you know, are our kids, you know, prepared to think critically about local and global issues? Can they understand and appreciate multiple cultural perspectives? Are they prepared to interact respectfully across lines of cultural difference? Do they take action to make a positive difference? And that's the portion of the test that the U.S. opted out of. So, I find this very, very concerning, both that we opted out and that there hasn't been a tremendous national outcry about the fact that we did opt out. You know, I think it just shows how narrowly we're thinking about the purpose of education in this country, and it's particularly concerning given the inequities that rage across our country and how much we need to be, you know, preparing our students on exactly these dimensions, you know, to work across lines of difference, to understand the full complexity of the country's history, you know, to have the agency to solve serious problems that that we face. So um, it, it strikes me as really concerning. So there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, first of all, I think one question that I have for you is, you know, the PISA is the exam which allows us to say, you know, Finland is eating our lunch or, you know, we're behind X number of countries. And you hear those data points bantered around in education policy circles. But one of the things that I realized when I was leading DC public schools is that some of my parents didn't know where Finland was, let alone they weren't worried about whether we were or were not competitive with other countries in the world. And at a time in the U.S. where people seem to be really concerned about their local situations and what just affects them, how do we get people to understand why global comparisons are important to begin with? You know, what we've learned through Teach for All, as you well know, Kaya, is that the roots of the inequities that we're addressing in education are very similar from place to place. All over the world, we have massive gaps in educational outcomes based on the circumstances of kids' birth. And when you get into it, you realize that the reason for that is very similar, which means that the solutions are much more shareable than we have realized before. So it's just fascinating, right? Like in health or the environment, we all know. We know our fates are interconnected. We know the solutions are shareable. 
So we work together across country lines to learn from each other, to spread solutions. And what we've seen is that we could be moving a lot more quickly if we were doing that in education. Many countries have bought into that idea. And in fact, when we got together with the gentleman who really led the incredible progress in Shanghai's education system, which, you know, 20 or so years ago had massive gaps, I mean, almost no mobility if, if you were, say, a migrant kid in, in the communities. And they've moved to have the, you know, some of the most exceptional, not only excellence, but equity in the world. And talking with him and talking with one of the gentlemen who really engineered Finland's rise in education, both of them, when we asked them independently in two different years, what did you do to get these outcomes? They said, number one, we sent our educators abroad. You know, we took an open approach. We realized we had so much to learn from the rest of the world. Um, so this is the other reason that our decision to opt out concerns me because it, it just makes me think we, we think we're so exceptional or we think we can't learn from, from others in the world. And to me, that's a sure sign of, isn't that the first sign of decline? Like if you're a company and you're not <laughs> learning from others and you're thinking we're so far out in front, we don't need to worry about how others are doing or learning from others. I mean, this is just, you know, it's, it's one of the first things I would do. Um, and I hope that the new administration in education will do um, is set out to say, okay, let's send our educators abroad. Let's join global networks. Let's understand what's working in other places. Yeah. I, I mean, I always say the way you solve complex problems is by bringing groups of people together and having them work collectively to do that. And if we are missing out because other countries know where their kids are and are actively cooperating, then that puts us behind the eight ball for sure. Um, when you think about the tenor of our country, I mean, we're not even talking to each other across communities or across states. Yeah. Yet and still, I think everybody is really concerned about one of the, I guess, great equalizers of the pandemic is that all parents across all communities, whether the, from the wealthiest to the poorest, from east to west, are recognizing that the American education system is largely inadequate. <laughs> I think many parents have a front row seat and are surprised by what they're seeing happening in their students' classrooms. We say all at a time that, you know, students are not just test scores and it's not just about reading and math. And here we have an opportunity to expand the definition of success and we're missing out on that. Talk a little bit more about what this global competence piece really means and how it might be more attractive to parents and families who are looking for different definitions of success. And this is basically an assessment about whether our kids are prepared, again, you know, to work across lines of difference, to understand issues from different perspectives, to, you know, have the agency to take action to solve problems, right? Like, these are exactly the things that we're saying are missing in our country right now. Um, and of course, what is happening in classrooms today is what we're going to see in our broader society in, you know, 10, 15 years or, or less, right? I mean, that, that's just a truism. Like the classrooms of today are, are the picture of what the world will be tomorrow. It's all the more inconceivable. I mean, especially at this juncture in our, our nation's history. You know, if you look at the results of, of this global competency portion, and, and I don't have all the data points in front of me, but just as a few, I mean, 
so, you know, basically showed, and these are the 66 countries participating in this, uh, you know, not including the U.S., but it showed that 82% of kids respect people from other cultures as equal, which sounds, okay, I mean, 82%, but that means that almost one out of five answered no to that question. Um, mm-hmm. 45% of kids reported, you know, a lack of interest in how other cultures see the world. Clearly, we have a lot of work to do, um, and I'm, I'm truly, really curious what we would find if we understood what those results show among 15-year-olds in, in the U.S. I could venture a guess, right, when we have a president who is prohibiting, in some respects, the critical examination of history in our country, right, who yeah. is shutting down training programs and teachings around critical race theory, which at least you don't have to believe it, but at least calls the question and brings people into dialogue. Yeah. And so, I mean, how do you, how do you think our kids would, I I, I think our kids would, (laughs) I think our kids would be in the lower rung of, of folks in that because I don't think we're communicating values that support global competence. Yeah. And when I look at the other the other countries that opted out are England, Germany, France, Denmark, the Netherlands, Finland, Ireland. Is there any significance in that? I mean, I guess we could all imagine like what do these governments have in common? I mean, one of the things that's interesting to think about, like I guess it's quite predictable that this administration would have made this call, right? Mm-hmm. And and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, Kaya, I'm curious what you would say, but I actually think if I asked a whole bunch of, you know, educators, like, do you think we should have opted into this? I, I'm not sure what I would hear because so I, I honestly encounter such narrow conceptions of what we need to focus on in education in the U.S. And I'm saying that having spent much of the last 10 years running around the world, you know, talking to folks in other countries and understanding how they're thinking about it. And I I think our perspective is that we have such huge issues in, you know, basic literacy and numeracy and such that we, you know, just don't have a second to focus anywhere else. But I think it's just such a, you know, to me, this is our biggest and number one issue in the U.S. right now as it relates to education. And honestly, I could argue overall, because again, what what we're doing in our classrooms today is the world will have tomorrow. Um, I just think we're really overdue for a discussion about what the purpose of education is, what we should be working towards. And, you know, I think this is a timely moment to have that discussion where I, I think there's a great deal of recognition across all, you know, the whole political spectrum that we do have a real issue. And and I think we need to step back and ask ourselves, what do we want to have be true for our country, for our communities? Therefore, what has to be true about our young people? Therefore, you know, what is the purpose of education? What are we working towards? And I think that would would lead us to focus much more broadly. Um, and of course, we're going to realize very strong literacy skills are going to be crucial for even the ability to work across lines of difference and see things from different perspectives. But I think we'll be focused far more broadly than that. I think that is right. But I think part of the problem is people lack vision. They don't have a sense of possibility about what could happen beyond math and reading and and what we've seen. And you having the perspective of visiting all kinds of countries around the world, um, many improbable ones who are not just working on on math and, and reading, but are working on broader things, help 
the listeners understand what it could look like. What could a different vision of education include? We came together across the Teach for All network, which, you know, as you say, is now, you know, we have 60 network partners around the world. Um, And we really came together to ask ourselves, what is it that we're working on together over the next, say, 25 years? I mean, so, you know, by the year 2040. So as part of that process, we went through the exercise of thinking, where will the world be in 25 years? And we got kind of deeply steeped in how much the economy is changing and how much the environment is degrading and all of the very complex challenges ahead. Even though, of course, we had some consciousness of all that, there was something about being in the midst of this process together that just honestly brought into very stark, you know, crystal clarity. Like, if our kids are not growing and developing as leaders who can shape a better future for themselves, navigate a changing economy, and for all of us, you know, be prepared to solve these increasingly complex problems in pursuit of our, you know, improving our collective welfare, there's no hope. Like, there's no hope for reaching any of our aspirations. And it was really a reorientation for me personally and and, and for, I think, our, our whole network, at, you know, as we thought about, okay, so what does that mean? Like, how will we gauge whether our students are growing as the leaders we need? Um, and it, it just sparked a totally different conversation, first of all, about the outcomes we're working towards, and then ultimately about how to reach them, you know, and what we need to do differently in developing our teachers and designing our schools if we're going to be, say, fostering students' agency, growing their sense of awareness of you know, the issues in the world, their place in the world, um, growing the kind of dispositions and competencies necessary, um, you know, to navigate a very uncertain world. Yes. Like that is inspiring to me. That is what I feel like I've signed up for in education. But real talk, right? That's not what the United States education system was set up to do. It wasn't set up to create leaders, right? In fact, it was set up to create factory workers and people who would not think for themselves. And we have not shaken past the vestiges of that. We don't have you know, a a force of educators who all believe that every kid could be a leader and could exercise that agency, right? And Exactly. This is our number one problem. So let's let's not even talk about the content, right? What we're teaching kids, right? And and look what happened when we started leaning in on teaching critical thinking with, you know, the common core standards and whatnot. um, Madness. But I mean, how do we get people's mindsets to shift from what education has been to what it could be? without people feeling threatened, right? Because there is, you know, you hear this saying that the system is working exactly the way it's supposed to work. How do we dismantle this systemic approach and insert a different one that does prepare our kids to lead and have agency and to make the changes that their communities need? I think this is our number one imperative and actually number one opportunity right now. As you say, Kaya, we are all in education in the U.S. working in a box that was created 
you know, when, I mean, 150 plus years ago. And the world was very different. Our aspirations were very different. Everything was different. And we're still operating in that box. And mm-hmm. we desperately need to step out of that box. And we've we've done it, right? Like, think about what's happened over these last six months. I mean, we have stepped out of the box as we know it. And I hope we don't just go right back into it. You know, to me, the most important thing we could be doing is coming together in our communities to consider what we're working towards for kids. And I've never heard more appetite for that discussion, actually. I mean, I think with parents having a much more up close and personal look at at their kids' experiences in schools, I mean, I think this is, there's an opportunity in this moment and in this country, you know, which this has to be a juncture of deep soul searching for all of us in this country. And, It's a puzzle to me that when we ask ourselves, you know, how are we going to address the polarization in our country? Like, you know, what's going to bring us together that we don't among, at least among our educators, you know, ask ourselves that question in our schools. Like, so what is our responsibility? What are we working towards? What will we do differently in our schools today that will make this country much stronger going forward. So I want to talk about what we're learning from from what you're seeing from other countries that we might learn from. But one of the worries that I have in terms of this being an opportune moment to rethink given pandemic education is I think there are a couple of different camps, right? There are people who are willing to grab the ring and figure out how to reinvent education. And so we've seen all kinds of innovation from pods to, you know, really different content providers to, I don't know, all kinds of things where we're trying, we're iterating, we're trying to figure out what works. And then I think that there is a large contingency of people, educators, policymakers, uh, decision makers who are literally just trying to get back to normal, yeah. who, who just want schools to reopen and just want to do what we've been doing because that is comfortable to us. And so how do we not slide back into the status quo when and if we get a vaccine and kids can go back into buildings or, or how do we not miss this moment? It is tough, right? And I, I do want to acknowledge all the incredible pressures that parents and teachers and educators and many, many people are under right now as we try to, you know, make it through this pandemic, you know, and all of its requisite challenges. Um, so I, I do think there are lots of competing pressures, but I also think we have to recognize that the status quo, first of all, it wasn't serving us before. Um, and secondly, well, amen. it will certainly not be sufficient to make up for all that's been lost in terms of everything from learning loss to the many other challenges, you know, that many students in this country have experienced in this time. I honestly, one, I don't think we have a choice for the future of the country. I, I honestly don't. But I also think that it's going to be really important for the generation of kids in school today in particular. Yeah, I think we need I think we need a strong voice championing this. There has been for a long time a lack of vision on where education should go at least in the last 4 years and I think that it's going to be critical 
um, that, you know, people keep on saying, well, the secretary of education needs to say, and you and I can talk about that in a few minutes, mm-hmm. but I actually think it's going to take a broader coalition of leaders to stand up and demand something different from our education system and demand for us to point in a different direction yeah. in order for this to happen. I just don't think we're going to get there on our own. I completely completely agree. And we need that at the national level, but we really need this at the local level, right? Like, Mm -hmm. ultimately, we need to be having these conversations in communities with all the stakeholders of education, starting with students themselves and their parents and, of course, educators um, and employers and other civic leaders and, and, um, you know, citizens in communities so that we can come together and really reflect on, I mean, honestly, what do we care about? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. what do we want? What are our values? What are our aspirations? What are the actual challenges facing our kids and in this community and, and in the country more broadly? What are the opportunities and what does all that mean? Like, what would it look like if in this community, we were actually producing kids who can shape a better future for themselves and all of us. Like, what's the locally contextualized version of that? You know, and and honestly, I think not only do I think this is crucial because we should be orienting towards a broader purpose for education, but also this is our chance to get out of the very polarized and stuck situation that we're in, you know, in education. Like, We have these debates. We don't talk to each other. You know, this is a way to step back and ask a very unifying question. You know, what do we want to have be true for our young people? And I think that that's our only chance, actually, of getting unstuck. Um, Because if we we come together around that vision and then honestly ask ourselves, are any of us on a path to that? I think we'll realize we could all win all of the battles that we've been fighting in education and we're not going to reach that point. So let's work together and figure out a new path. It's also a huge opportunity for people to exercise their power. I think in this recent election, what we saw were, you know, people organized around a goal uh, around a shared goal and everybody, you know, had a different role to play, but they worked towards that shared goal as much as we are waiting for the federal government to save us or the stimulus money to save education, I think that it's time for us to circle back to communities where education decisions are made locally. Why aren't school board members having these conversations, leading these conversations in their community? Why aren't mayors uh, asking, bringing together groups of people to figure out what education should look like in their cities? I mean, we have an opportunity to express our power locally. And I think, you know, everybody keeps asking me, who's going to be the next secretary and are they going to save us? No, we have to save ourselves. This local piece, I think, is really interesting. Tell us what you're seeing around the world. Give us some some things to be excited about that we're learning from other communities. I mean, one of the things we've seen across our network, we've started doing studies of, you know, what is going on in the classrooms where kids are developing a sense of agency, where they are, you know, growing in in their leadership across these different dimensions. And what we've seen is that the teachers in those classrooms are operating very differently than almost any teacher development paradigm that would be, say, on the market in the U.S. would be working towards. You know, these teachers are 
they have a different set of mindsets. You know, they've sort of unlearned how they were taught and have internalized a different, you know, approach, which has to do with, you know, facilitating learning and building a sense of community and the relationships in a classroom that enable kids to play a much more active role in owning their education in, you know, in the dialogue in their classroom. We're not going to foster student leadership by having kids be passive receptacles of information for 12 years and then expect them to suddenly step up and lead the future. Like, it just, it's not going to happen. So we need to change what goes on in classrooms today. So I think the, the systems we're seeing that are furthest ahead are those that are working towards a broad set of outcomes, are developing their teachers to work towards them um, effectively. Like, it's it's not a huge, magic, mysterious silver bullet. It's, it's more just, you know, what are we working towards and how are we investing in the people in the puzzle in order to, um, you know, if, if we're going to develop students' leadership, we need to develop teachers' leadership and, and really the leadership of everyone at every level in the system. That, that's really what we've seen work. A lot of times when we talk about what teachers need to do differently, um, our teachers feel stressed and like the whole thing falls on them. I wonder, what about the ecosystem that surrounds teachers? What do universities have to do differently to prepare teachers to have different mindsets? What can teachers unions who support uh, teachers' growth and development, what could they be doing differently to help this shift in thinking? I truly believe this is a project for all of us. I mean, we were all, we all grew up. And, and honestly, these education systems look so similar from place to place. So all around the world, we all grew up in, in an education system working towards a very narrow set of outcomes. And, you know, we, we've internalized that way of, of education. And, if we're going to embrace something different, we need not only the teachers and the school leaders and the people at every level of the system, um, but all of us parents and students themselves to come to the table and embrace a different paradigm. And I think we'll have real allies in other sectors as well. And yes, we need the higher ed institutions and those that are preparing teachers and, and the teacher unions as well, as we know, can be such a force in teachers' development. One thing that's interesting, Kaya, when you were talking about how teachers can feel like, gosh, we're just putting so much pressure on them, you brought me back to this conference I was at in India, which was kind of co-facilitated by students who had been developed by Teach for India and their kids' education revolution. And I was in a circle of students and teachers who were sharing their experiences in school and one of the students said, with all compassion and love in her voice to, to the teacher, you know, I feel like you need to feel a little less responsible sometimes. And it was just such a beautiful statement because she was kind of acknowledging that what was leading to a very kind of teacher-directed classroom where the teacher is, you know, essentially the students have no agency and, and no ownership over their education was actually the best of intentions on the part of us adults who are trying to do the best thing for students. And she was saying, if you let us in, we can help you. We can partner with you to rethink and work together on our classroom culture um, and on how we're working most expediently to the outcomes that we're working to reach. So I, I just thought that was really 
instructive and maybe the most fundamental mindset shift that that we need all of us adults to to make. I mean, it is a mindset shift. These kids are ready. They have shown us in the last year or two, right, through their leadership on, you know, protests. They want a different world. They, they, you know, yeah. they have deep feelings about guns. They have deep feelings about the climate. They have, I mean, these young people are ready. And as adults, we wholly underestimate their capacity. And so for many adults, it's hard for them to see kids as partners. So talk for a minute. I had the pleasure of, of visiting Kids Education Revolution, and it really is a, an incredibly unique organization. Can you talk a little bit about the premise of Kids Education Revolution? <laughs> yes. Um, well, the founder of Teach for India, Shaheen Mistri, um, also founded Kids Education Revolution. And her what brought her to it was this belief that, you know, in our lifetime, we aren't going to see the kind of, you know, revolution in education that we need to see. Like, we're still operating in the same exact box again that, that we were operating in decades and decades ago. And she had come to think, you know, the only way to see this happen in our lifetimes is if we are doing this not only from the top down, like teachers and educators down, but from the ground up. And and so the premise behind Kids Education Revolution is that we need partnership between students and teachers and educators in order to reimagine our education system. And, you know, that's one of the principles. Safe space for student voice is another, and kids as changemakers is the third principle. And they've really, um, you know, they're propagating a group of students and adults who believe in those principles and are working to live into them in in their classrooms and in, in their schools. It really is remarkable to see kids and teachers sitting next to each other trying to reimagine education. It is inspiring to see kids leading professional development sessions for teachers like they do at KER. And for teachers, I mean, the way teachers respond to kids is has been, I think, transformative for so many teachers. I mean, I've, I, I heard teachers um, talking about how different this experience was. And, and, and mm-hmm. when I look at how it empowers kids to lead, when you're sitting next to adults and co-creating solutions with adults from the time that you're, you know, in middle school and high school, uh, then, yeah. you know, that leadership muscle is just continually developed over time. Yeah. And so I, it's it's really been one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. And you can go check them out at uh, kidseducationrevolution.org. I think the other thing that I, I really love about it is that their approach, um, and they, they speak unabashedly about this, that their approach to changing the education system is through love. And I think if we you know, we love data, we love comparisons, we love all kinds of things. But I think it harkens back to our humanity and our connection to one another. And that connection, I think, is the thing that compels us to different outcomes. That connection is the thing that makes us see kids differently, not as gaps that we need to fill, but as real people that we need to grow and develop. It is so true, Kaya. I'll, I'll never forget, you know, the the kids' education revolution kind of opening that I went to where they highlighted the fact that love 
is spelled backwards in the word revolution. Like, it is absolutely core to their principles. And the other thing that really struck me, not only with Kids Education Revolution, but just in this global journey, is how collective people in many other cultural contexts are in their conception of what leadership is. And, you know, Mm. so even thinking about the kids' education revolution and how it's playing out in India, where these students are operating with such love and respect and in such deep partnership with adults, you know, you can just see that playing itself out in a U.S. context where it's like we've got a lot of student leadership but not a lot of partnership. And I just think ultimately we need all of us. I mean, if there's been any lesson from from really 30 years of this work, but but certainly from the global journey, it is that the only chance we're going to have to change our very broken systems is through collective leadership. It's through fostering the leadership of each and every one of us, from students to parents to, you know, all the actors around the whole system. And love has to be at the center of that, as you say. So we will have a new Secretary of Education, and she calls you up and says, Wendy, before I talk to anybody else, I want to learn from your global experiences and your 30 years of of U.S. education experience. Tell me, what should I prioritize and how should I think about moving the American education system forward at this point? What would you tell her? I, I would suggest two things. One, that we need a nationwide effort to rethink the purpose of education. You know, we need to be in dialogue everywhere with each other, in communities, at the national level, everywhere about you know, what are we working towards? And and ultimately embrace, you know, a broad vision for student success, essentially. That, um, so that, that's the first and most important thing. I think once we've embraced a, a broader purpose, then we'll at least be orienting all of our efforts in the right direction. Um, and the second thing I would say is, you know, our educators abroad, you know, let's learn from other countries because that will broaden the mindsets and approach and understandings of our educators. And we've we've all seen the power of connecting people with peers in very different cultural contexts, you know, who face similar challenges and are approaching things in different ways because their cultures are different. Um, and, and I just think it would be very empowering and kind of shifting for our nation's educators. Well, you heard it here first. The two big priorities, a national dialogue around the purpose of education and expanding our vision for our young people's outcomes and working with the world to do that, learning from other people, bringing our educators together with other educators. That sounds like a plan to me. Um, I want to thank you, Wendy, for sharing with uh, our pod listeners. And I want to thank you also for Um, Your contribution, you've made such a significant contribution to not just the American education system and growing leaders all across the country, um, but now to the world. And so thank you. Thank you, Kaya. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe, and our special contributor, Janetta Elsie.